Hello and welcome to, yes, the sixth episode of the Bold Podcast with me, Ben. And me, also Ben. How are you today, Ben? Yeah, I'm doing all right, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. You know, I'm feeling a bit more positive. You know, there's a lot of news lately with everything regarding COVID and, you know, sort of when we're going to be able to see people, friends and family. So I think, you know, things are just on the up, aren't they? Yeah, there's a lot to be a lot to be optimistic about. I think it'll be a good a good summer, hopefully. And uh, obviously, once we're out of lockdown, the both podcast will go up levels and levels and levels. And you guys, you're not ready. Yeah, you're not ready. We have we how knew, good the both podcast we, is going to be. We were discussing about potentially doing a live one for the last day of the season. That would be interesting. That would be very interesting. I think, especially if it's whatever game Newcastle are playing in. You know, that'll inevitably get them relegated. That's true. But yeah, should we jump straight into this week's Premier League action, or is there anything you wanted to talk about before? We may as well jump in. It was obviously a double game week for most teams this week. I suggest that we just start with Manchester City and their two wins. Start at the top, start at the top. So yeah, Man City obviously played twice this week, played against West Ham and against Wolves, or Wolverhampton Wanderers, if you're that way inclined. Won both games fairly comfortably, only conceded two goals in two games, scored six. Obviously beating West Ham 2-1 and Wolves 4-1. I think we should start with the West Ham game, because last time we were talking about this game and, and kind of saying it was going to be a bit of a banana peel for Manchester City, and Pep Guardiola basically just gave us the finger and did not really make it a struggle. They struggled slightly, but not to what we were saying, really. No, I watched the game and... I think uh, Manchester City were just comfortable without having to put too much work in. You know, West Ham, they created quite a few chances. They just struggled. I think they just had the you know the lack of the final third. And they obviously got their goal with Antonio Lingard playing a part in it. Um, but, uh, you know, since that goal went in, Manchester City just turned up another gear and got the goal that they needed for the win. Yeah, and I definitely think there's kind of a thing with Pep Guardiola's teams now where they've stopped kind of absolutely blowing teams away because a because they don't have Aguero kind of the old Aguero at the minute and also because there's just no need like Manchester City have done you know the games where they've won 8-0 against like people in the relegation zone it's just cruel at this point so I think Pep's kind of started just getting the three points going through the motions because obviously the league started off so not badly for them but it didn't start off as well as it could have done so then I think now he's just kind of like, okay, let's just get the points, you know, do it thoroughly. And then obviously if we end up scoring more than two or three, that's an excellent result. Otherwise, he's happy with three points every week. Yeah, I think, well, I think likewise uh, with the Wolves game, it was very similar. They went 1-0 up and then they just felt comfortable. But then Wolves got the their goal. And then since then, Manchester City just went up another gear because they had to. And they got three goals in a matter of 10 minutes. And it's just like... You wonder why they can't just do that from the off. But, you know, obviously there's a lot of games they play. They're, you know, the team's changing every week. Different players are playing. And they're probably just trying to get through all the games. They've obviously got the Champions League, the Carwell Cup final coming up. And they're obviously, you know, fighting on four fronts. So they're probably just trying to get through each one as comfortable as they can. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the success, obviously, in the last two games, they've only conceded two. And they haven't conceded for quite a while. And that's kind of looking at the, the centre-back partnership in Stones and Diaz. Obviously, Diaz bought in quite recently, was kind of looking like a world-beater from the the minute-go kind of thing. But then John Stones, a player who started off well at Man City and then has just recently not quite been in form. You thought when we saw him in the World Cup for England that maybe he might be able to pull it back and revitalise his career, and it didn't really happen. But now, all of a sudden... Apparently, he must have just gone home one night and realised, oh, wait, I'm one of the best centre-backs in the world. Because this, this partnership is, is has been unbelievable. I suppose the question is, kind of how far can they go in terms of not only as a pair, but individually? I think the ceiling's high for both of them, you know. Diaz is only 23 years old. John Stones is fairly young himself. You know, they're, they're in good shape and they're obviously still just learning how each other play, but, you know... They can go as far as they can. They can win the Premier League this year, potentially. I've read somewhere that they were talking about the best in about partnership in the world. And there's a reason you could say that you could actually agree with that. And they've only conceded sort of not many goals in 15 games. And they've kept a lot of clean sheets during that time as well. And they've also contributed to scoring as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think all round they've just been so far pretty much excellent. Obviously, there's a reason why Man City aren't losing and why they're winning so many games. In terms of, because you look at all the great centre-back partnerships, kind of like your, your Vidic and Ferdinand, your Terry and Cahills, and those these kind of centre-back partnerships, there's always two people who complement each other really well. And I think that's what you have with Stones and Diaz. John Stones, who, is, who looks like a bit more of a reserved figure, he's a bit more, he seems a bit better on the ball. And then you have Diaz, who's kind of that kind of bigger bloke who'll just head anything and you know, he's more of the, the physical side, and yet both of them do the other one's role really well. So where, like, John Terry arguably wasn't as good on the ball as some players, or Cahill wasn't as good on the ball, or whoever, these guys seem to have a capacity to do both roles quite well. And I think that's what kind of sets them apart as potentially one of, like you say, one of the best uh, partnerships in the world. And I think you have to give John Stones a lot of credit as well, because they obviously bought... Diaz in in the summer, so you you would have felt that he'd have felt a bit of pressure and probably you know struggling to make the Manchester City squad. They've obviously got Laporte as well, who had a really good season last season, and now he's obviously struggling to get into the Manchester City team. So Stones has obviously saw that they bought Diaz and decided that he had to turn up, and obviously it's worked well. I think you know, like you said, Diaz brings the best out of him, and Stones brings out the best in Diaz. Yeah, and I mean when when you are two centre-backs like that, obviously the classic example is like Van Dijk and Gomez, you also don't really have to worry about you know making mistakes. You can kind of take a few more risks, stay on the ball for a bit longer, because you know that the person next to you is good enough to, to kind of correct what you've done wrong. And likewise, you're going to be there to correct what they've done wrong. So it does feel like a very, a very classic partnership. And obviously people were talking when Liverpool bought Van Dijk, about obviously him being the best defender in the world. I think you've got someone in Diaz, certainly, who could potentially take that crown from Van Dijk. I honestly have to agree with you there. I've read a lot of people's opinions, and they're potentially saying that Diaz could win the player of the year in the Premier League. I think he's just transformed that Manchester City team, like what Virgil did, into league winners, and he's just been able to protect the City defence, him and John Stones, and then they've allowed the full-backs to go into midfield and then just allowed the rest of the Manchester City team just to attack. Yeah, I mean, speaking of uh, speaking of Manchester City's attack and kind of moving on from the centre-backs, who are obviously incredible, I think that reassurance they give allowed this City team to attack. And I think one thing that, even though Manchester City haven't always had the best defence, they've had, obviously had a very, very good defence in like Carl Walker, company... Zabaleta. Zabaleta, yeah. And you could kind of say people like Otamendi, but he wasn't really... At that level, I think when they've not had as good a defence, they've had such a good attack where as long as they can defend, say, a few balls into the box, as soon as that counter-attack happens or as soon as they get on the ball, they score almost instantly. And then it kind of alleviates that pressure on the defence. And one of the key factors in that in the last five, six years has been Sergio Aguero. And obviously this season he's not really featured much. He's had injury problems. He's obviously... Quite, he's he's an older player now. He's he's obviously only been in the Premier League for nearly ten years. Yeah, which is like when you actually think back of Sergio Aguero, you don't. It doesn't feel like ten years, but then when you actually kind of think about it, he has been there for ages. He's been one of the best players, I have to say, in the Premier League over the last sort of ten years. I think everyone thinks back to his Aguero, you know, in the QPR to win the first Premier League title. On his day, is one of the best strikers in the Premier League. It's a shame that, you know, I think he's getting on. I think it's potentially his last season this year. I think he's just sort of been... They've obviously had Jesus come in. He's also sort of been an understudy, but I think now his time's sort of coming. He's getting a month of goals, and I think he's getting the game time as well. Yeah, I think what you don't want... Again, we, we I kind of spoke about this with Ronaldo and Messi. You don't want a player to play for too long to a point where they're always injured. And you only really remember them for the injuries. And I think with Aguero, it'd be the right time to retire kind of this year, next year. Obviously, it's a hard decision for a footballer to make. But the only real thing that he's going to be thinking about is potentially that he hasn't won the Champions League. I mean, that's the only title he's not not really got a hold of. He's, he's won many Premier Leagues. He's won FA Cups, Carabao Cups. He's won anything, everything he can win in this country. It's just a shame he's never quite got that chance to, to go on and, and kind of establish himself in the Champions League kind of thing. Yeah, but no, they might they could win it this year, you never know. 
Yeah, but there's a difference between them winning it this year and Sergio Aguero helping them win it this mm. year, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you know what I mean. But how, if he calls, comes on in the final and they're 2-0 down and wins it 3-2, then maybe you'd say it was a Sergio Aguero moment. But I think he has to be involved consistently in this Champions League, otherwise it's not really his Champions League win, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sort of when, you know, when the players play that one game in the Premier League and they get a medal. Well, the, the classic example is... Is it Robert Green who's got a Europa League medal or something like that? It might be. There's there's someone... Like, obviously, Adrian's got a Champions League medal. You know, players... Just random players like that, like, who don't play but have to be on the bench. I'm just wondering if Sergio Aguero will turn into that for, for Manchester City. Obviously, we'll have to see how he performed in his last season. But I think from one... Top Premier League striker. I think we've got to go to another with Harry Kane and how Spurs are playing at the moment. They had the 4-0 win at Burnley, a perfect bounce back for that defeat against West Ham. Obviously, Bale, Son, Kane are basically all just now playing to what you'd think they could. It's it's obviously unfortunate for them that this couldn't be earlier, but I think what was interesting, and certainly what's starting to be interesting, obviously they played Burnley and then they played Fulham, is that now Jose's starting to play that team that everyone expects him to play with Son, Kane, Bale, and then someone kind of in behind. And obviously it was, was it Lucas Moura against Burnley? I believe it was, and then it was Dele yeah, Alli against scored. Fulham. So that's what I was going to say. And then obviously we spoke about it last week, about him talking about Dele Alli potentially being back. He played, the Fulham game wasn't exactly what you'd call a vintage Dele Alli performance. I mean, it wasn't a vintage Tottenham performance, really. It was actually quite boring. I think what is good to see is he's kind of trusting that team to go out and win because I think he has to accept now that he's not going to... Having a good defence isn't really going to make that much of a difference this year because if he can score goals, he can win games. And all he needs to do is win games. It's not about getting results against the big teams anymore. It's about getting wins against every single team he plays regardless. And I think he's just got to kind of go gung-ho for it. And obviously having that front three is certainly a good way to start well I think it's like what, what me and you spoke about last week we were just when you look at that Spurs team they just have so much talent amongst that squad and it's actually a bit uh, just disappointing when you see a Tottenham side line up so defensively when you've got you know Son, Kane, Bale, Mora you know you look at their bench they've got a lot of players, Deli Alley, and I think that a lot of Tottenham fans are just a bit pleased in the changes that Mourinho's has made obviously we'll have to see how he lines up in big games against top teams where does he still go defensive or does he just go all out attack and just score more goals than the other uh, opposition I definitely think that the the Jose Mourinho style of football for the bigger games you know like if he's playing against your Man City's Chelsea's Liverpool-ish is I think it's all right for him to sit back a little bit because that's what most teams would do what I don't really like is where the Brighton game and stuff like that where They've got nothing really going forward and you can just smash four goals past them. It doesn't matter if you concede two. It's kind of similar to the whole Leeds debate. Leeds are basically doing the anti-Tottenham in a sense that Leeds just go for it and if they concede, they concede. If they score, they score. Who cares? I think if Spurs did that with the quality of players they had, I think they'd be in a lot of better position. I'd even go so far as to say if Bielsa was manager of Spurs, I think they'd win the league with that team. Well, I think when you look at the front three they've they've got, I I said it last week, I said it again, I don't think there's a better front three in the Premier League. You could argue there's, like, midfield and front three, there's probably not much of a better, like, Hoiberg's a high-class player, Deli Alli, Undombele, then they've got Sissoko on the bench, Harry Winks on the bench. You could argue for, in terms of, on average, between, in a even in a whole team, you could argue, they are... They are up there. Obviously, they can't compete with Man City because they've got about a million players who are all valued at about £30 million each. <laughs> but they haven't you know, spent ridiculous amounts of money on just anyone. I think they've made a few mistakes. Maybe signing Doherty from Wolves was a bit of a mistake because obviously he plays in part of a back three, so that's maybe not quite worked out. I think potentially getting Gareth Bale in, as much as it's seeming a good decision now... I feel like you could have kind of taken a bit of pressure off Spurs by not having him there, but at the same time, 
you wouldn't say it was a bad thing, obviously bringing Deli Ali back in. I think Jose Mourinho has made some very shrewd decisions in how he's managed, how he's made his team line up, and kind of how he's he's man managed all of these players. Because obviously you've got players like Son, Kane, Bale, big personalities of people. To man manage that level of people must be must be quite a challenge. In terms of like the the Mourinho style of play, do you think they should kind of can that off and just start? playing more attacking and doing a bit more of a lead or do you think they should just stick with what Mourinho says if they have to sit back they sit back if they have to go forward they go forward well it's like when when Mourinho was in charge of Man United and me being a Man United fan there were just games that I got so frustrated when he just goes back and sit back when you've got the attacking talents that you have you could arguably say that Man United didn't, didn't have the attacking players that Spurs have right now I just think in this day and age it's you're not going to win the Premier League by just sitting back. Ten years ago, when Mourinho was in charge of Chelsea, yes, you could. But I think in today's day and age with this modern football, players are too technical that they can always most likely score when teams are sitting back. Mourinho just needs to change his tactic if he wants to win another Premier League title. I think as well, it's getting hard for managers who do have that defensive mindset to come away from it because ultimately... The players that we're seeing are getting better and better, as is natural in a sport like football. And I think that, effectively, Jose Mourinho, as players are getting more attacking, rather than pressing higher and kind of negating that attack, he's just sitting further and further back. I reckon it's not going to be too long until we have 11 players all in the goalkeeper strip, standing next to Hugo Lloris kind of thing. I just don't think that sitting back style of play can work anymore, like you said because the individuals are so good. It's all well and good sitting back against, you know, a a group of players kind of thing, like a team with no individual stars, where they have to try and play it around you. But you look at, most teams have that one player who could take it past every single person in your defence and score. And once you've scored once, it then becomes really easy to score against a team who are sitting back, because they then have to push forward. And the reason they're sitting back is because they're not as good defensively. I think you look at the Manchester City team, for starters, they have a right-back that basically plays in midfield. He's basically a midfielder. You wouldn't say Cancelo is a right-back. Yeah, they play two at the back, it's mental. (laughs) Moving on from that Tottenham game, there was a massive handball decision for Fulham. They got a disallowed goal because of a handball. I didn't actually see this, so you're going to have to take the floor on this one. Well, basically, it hit uh, a Fulham on the attack and it hit a Fulham player's hand, but his hand was literally down his side in a natural position. But obviously, because it led towards a goal, they had to disallow it because it hit his hand, which is a disgrace. You know, it went to VAR. VAR said they saw they hit the hand and it was like disallowed. But then within the Chelsea-Man United game, uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi, the ball was in the box and his hand was in an unnatural high position and it wasn't a penalty. There just seems to be uh, no consistency with this handball rule. Yeah, I mean, even looking yesterday, obviously we'll talk about the, the Liverpool-Chelsea game at length. The Kante handball decision, his hand was in a position like he was waving. It hit his hand, the ball was going straight to whoever it was, in kind of in the box, and it hit Kante's hand and, of course, the referee doesn't give it. There's no the problem is there's no consistency and there's no you know some referees want to be harsher than others because at the end of the day if you're a harsher referee you're more likely to be employed again because you don't take any rubbish from the players kind of thing and I think there's there's some people and some referees who rather than admit they've made a mistake or look at something and admit they've made a mistake they would much rather just follow through blindly with their decision. And I mean, I just think I think that the quality of refereeing in general is just poor. Yeah, it's really poor. Like, the fact that I've seen Mike Dean referee some of Forrest's games in the Championship and then Mike Dean will go and referee like a Manchester United game. As much as I don't doubt that these people are very well versed in the rules, as much as I don't doubt that they are very experienced people who've obviously gone through all the training protocols, I think right back at the start, where the training protocols come in, they have to be a lot more strict on just common sense. Well, a lot of, you know, you could argue that they probably just don't know a lot of the rules themselves with with VAR being introduced. But I don't think, like, the players probably know the rules, the, the managers, the staff, no one knows the rules of the handball, offsides. This is the thing, is that technically, with most of the decisions that VAR makes, they are actually right. 
if you look at them individually and don't look at any other examples, that ball did hit that player's hand, so it is a handball. Regardless of you know whether it led to a goal or whatever, it doesn't really make a difference. It was a handball in the sense that you know when there's these offside positions where it's like a player's big toe is onside or whatever it is, it is a correct decision because you are offside. But that's not really what the result, what the rules for. The whole point of making the rules really complicated is to make it fit a load of different scenarios. And the problem is, is we've got pundits every single week. And this is the reason they brought in VAR, by the way, is because you've got pundits every single week, like slewing referees constantly, saying, like, this is an awful decision, I can't believe he's not seen that. This is even before VAR, they're saying, can't believe the referee's not seen that. Like, well, well, I can, it happened in about a microsecond. He's got no chance to look at it again. And actually, he's running round after one of the most high-intense sports in the world, and whether or not you can say that it's his job to know how to kind of look for these things, it is going to be difficult. So ultimately, I think the rules have to be simplified and the referee just has to be allowed to make a decision, go over to the monitor and actually think about situations. But not for not for stupid stuff like, was he offside by a millimetre? Because no one cares. What, what you need to be is kind of, you know, fall out these handballs how much in a, in a normal position is it? And maybe look at, can you get a model of each player when they're running around where their arm would be in a normal position and then compare it to their arm when it's in an unnatural position and stuff like that. They just need It needs to be made simpler for the referees so that they can't make as many mistakes. Completely agree with all of what you just said there. I think it's just too complicated for the refs. The referees just, they don't know a lot of the, the rules, I don't think. They, I think they sometimes get scared with what to do in certain games. There was rumours during the Manchester United-Chelsea game, the referee supposedly said to Harry Maguire that he didn't want to give that handball decision because there'll be a lot of talk about it after the game. Yeah, I think, from what I can tell, I think that was... I think it might have been... like mod, There would have been some truth in the referee maybe didn't want to give the decision or... Cause, but I don't... As far as I can tell, Luke Shaw did misquote Harry Maguire or something. I, yeah, it's it's one of these where ultimately as a referee, that's probably what most of them are thinking, is when a player goes down in the box, he probably thinks, well, if I give this, everyone's going to complain about it. If I don't give it, everyone's going to complain about it. My life's miserable. <laughs> Help me. Kind of thing. Kids, it's don't that, be a referee. It's that thing again of who would want to be a referee. Because when you're on TV, some football players will put in dire performances in that... Like, Performances that would genuinely make you think, are you sure you should be doing this for the rest of your life? Referees can make one mistake in a game. And fair enough, it might lead to a goal. Fair enough, it might lead to whatever it is. And all of a sudden, you've got like Jamie Redknapp, Jamie Carragher, all on Sky, just going mental about it and talking about it. And, you know, they're not doing it directly, but they're riling people up to go against referees. You know, if people just said, yeah, it's a mistake from the referee, what are you going to do? Let's talk about the actual football. Because if the referee wasn't there and there was some, I don't know, let's say VAR was more advanced and you didn't need to have a referee on the pitch, you wouldn't blame the referee for the decisions because there'd be no one to attack. Because there's the referee there and he's actually making the decisions, there's someone to attack. Now, some referees are an exception to the rule. You know, the guy in the in the Brighton game when the whistle went and he took the free kick in West Brom game and it didn't count. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so things like that, that's fair enough, that's the referee's fault. But things where they're having to make decisions based on VAR and based on the stupid rules that are in place, referees again like genuinely attacked every single week. And I just think if you're willing to blame the referee, you should be willing to blame the rules and you should be willing to go higher. But no one will because no one wants to take time and read the hundreds of pages that the FA give you for the rule books, they just want to go, well, in my eyes, this wasn't a penalty, so therefore my eyes are correct, the referee is wrong. The referees, most of the time, make the correct decision, it just doesn't suit most people's narrative. Yeah, I think that's completely correct with what you said. You know, I'm not I'm not really that passionate about it. Uh, I think you are. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I think we have to move on to the Liverpool-Chelsea game. And there was a a goal disallowed for Chelsea with Timo Werner, where it was like his hand was offside. 
Yeah, I mean, again, ultimately, it is correct. Again, it's it's the same logic. Again, it is a correct decision. It's just the rules ridiculous. Well, I think, in it, fact, I think you can't score with that part of the body. I think that's what it was saying. The the part of the body that was offside, you couldn't score with. Mate, I think from what I saw it, but I, I mean, it's again, it's so complicated. And it's such a complex argument to have because you can't just put it down to right and wrong. Ultimately, it's did you gain an advantage? by being in the offside position that you were in and Timo Werner being you know half a yard in front of someone is technically gaining an advantage but at the same time I think luckily that decision there didn't impact the game Chelsea still went on to win 1-0 Liverpool didn't play very well I don't think that decision impacted that game that much you know affected the result mm. I think there's obviously other games where a certain decision has impacted a result, you know, sort of the Fulham one where the handball was disallowed, Tottenham went on to win the game. Most fans and teams just need to actually focus on their own performance rather than a VAR decision. At the end of the day, VAR is probably getting more right than wrong, really. Because the only reason we think it's getting so much wrong is because that's all you focus on. I think what people don't quite realise is VAR is checking the entire game. So that means it's making decisions right for 90 minutes... And then for two of those minutes, it's getting something wrong. So you can say, well, one in 45 minutes, it makes a mistake, which is not really that bad. Footballers make a mistake more than one in 45 minutes. In terms of this game, I mean, as much as Liverpool didn't play as well as they could, I still thought for both teams it was two fairly good performances. I think Chelsea, obviously, were definitely the better team. Obviously, Liverpool did look a bit kind of dejected. and Yeah, I don't think they had a shot on target till about the 86th minute. Yeah, I think in terms of the way they were working the ball, the way they were pressing, it did look kind of like the old Liverpool, obviously, Jota's back. Uh, so they did. They looked better, but I think it's just the case of perhaps the, the recent results and what's happened with the team recently has affected them. Obviously, it was good to see Alisson back in goal. I just feel like Liverpool have got to do something drastic very quickly yeah. and they've got to turn this around because they have to be in the Champions League because if they're not, they arguably lose their best players and there's all talk of like Mbappe to Liverpool 2021 or 2022 or whatever it is. And you know, There's all talks of these big signings. They won't happen if Liverpool don't get the Champions League. I think you can just look at the two teams. I think Chelsea are on the rise and Liverpool are on the decline. You know, Liverpool have lost five games at home in a row now. Chelsea are still unbeaten under Thomas Tuchel. I think there's a lot of talk about whether they made the right decision sacking Lampard and getting Tuchel in. But I think you can tell that they made a good decision in bringing Thomas Tuchel. They're unbeaten. They've beaten Atletico Madrid, Liverpool. Drew against Man United. They've also beaten Spurs. And I think they're more likely to get the top four than Chelsea. Uh, Liverpool, sorry, at the moment. Yeah, well, I think one thing that I keep kind of seeing being said, and I think it's it's got some kind of value to it, is as much as people talk about Liverpool needing to get top four for the Champions League and whatever, there is still a very good chance that Liverpool will make the Champions League by the Champions League. I think they've got a, as good a chance as most teams of going and winning that Champions League just because of the way... They can play. They can blow any team away in the same way that Man City can, the same way Chelsea can. They do have a good chance. I just think with the Premier League, what's happening is the results are piling up and they're playing teams who... So, you know, Liverpool will finish a game, they'll go in and they'll see the results of the day. They'll see Man City have won, they'll see Chelsea have won. And if they've lost, that's got to get them down. Whereas the Champions League, it's literally one game at a time. It doesn't matter who's playing well in the next game because ultimately it's a knockout fixture. It could just be one goal that separates it. And they can just focus on kind of that progression rather than having to build it up and be consistent every single week. They can just kind of take their time. And I think ultimately what will happen is when Liverpool can no longer make the top four, they will just go, if they're still in it, they'll just go crazy for the Champions League, uh, rest every single player they have in the Premier League as much as they can and just go on to try and win that win the Champions League. But ultimately I think Liverpool are good enough to get Champions League football, as are Chelsea, as are about eight teams in the league at the minute. Just looking at the table now, they're only five points behind 
Chelsea in fourth place, but you know Tottenham are on their tails with a game in hand, only one point behind Liverpool. West Ham are obviously in good form. Everton, three wins on the trot for them. Leicester, Man United. So it's obviously a it's a big race for the top four. And I just think the way Liverpool are playing at the moment, their form. I just don't think there's any way that they can make the top four. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. I think Chelsea definitely, like you say, Chelsea have a better chance than Liverpool. I think probably West Ham, you could argue, have a better chance than Liverpool. Leicester have a better chance than Liverpool. It's just, I feel like they have kind of mentally checked out after last season. I think ultimately they just went absolutely ballistic every single week last season. And I just think it's caught up to them. I think you do hear a little bit about Klopp's teams being mentally and physically drained. Obviously what happened at Dortmund, I think they were they were well on the decline when, when he, he was relieved of his job there. I don't know, it'd be interesting to see. I also, there's people talking about Klopp getting sacked. I don't think that should be the case. But it'd be an interesting one. And, and on kind of Chelsea, they are a side who have, I think have done it right. They've got youth players in there in Mason Mount, Reese James, Ben Chilwell to a certain extent, although he's not their youth specifically. So I think they're, they're kind of doing that quite well. And then ultimately they have brought in these extra talents that are slowly, very slowly, building themselves back up. You look at Timo Werner's getting better. Havertz will, I'm sure, come good because he is a good player. Eventually, that, that competition for places in that team will be insane. Yeah, I think I said at the start of the season, just to some mates, I think on paper, you have to look at the Chelsea squad they've got. They're arguably one of the best in the league. Like Potentially well, it, even better than you know, the likes of Manchester City. Yeah. I think their their squad is better than Man City's. I just think that when I talk about a player being good, I mean like the name. So, like, Cristiano Ronaldo is good because of the name. It doesn't really matter whether he's playing well. He's just good. Whereas Man City players are okay, but, like, Gundogan was a well-established player. Like, the Silvers were well-established players. But they weren't that elite level. The prime example is Kevin De Bruyne. Obviously, when he was at Chelsea, he wasn't great. And he, he joins a Pep side, and Pep kind of cultivates these players, and, and obviously Mancini before that. And that's the difference. I feel like the difference with, especially with what was happening when Lampard was there, is the players ultimately weren't improving. And I think that's what two shells kind of brought in. And to do it in such a small space of time where he's got to play in a different way, exuding confidence as well. They're not playing like a team that's worried about winning. They're playing like a team who knows they're going to win. I think they were, they were talking about that like from day one of him coming into the club. There was just You could already see a different Chelsea side from the previous uh, team under Frank Lampard. I think he joined for one or two days and they beat Spurs in their first game 1-0. Mm. Uh, and he's so intense as well as a man. Have you seen, you know, when he when they the match finished against Liverpool, the way he was celebrating when, when that final whistle went, he was going crazy. He was walking up to all the players and, like, gritting his teeth and ready, God. And that's what you need, is you need that kind of intense think- individual over a short space of time who is just going to... Drill, 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 drill until the end of the season. And then when you get to go on holiday, it's going to be an effort just to get on the plane because you're like, oh, I've been running all season, I don't want to do this anymore. You know what I mean? I think in a way you sort of remind me of Jurgen Klopp. Jurgen Klopp would ideally be be doing what Tuchel's doing at the minute and ultimately the setbacks he's had and naturally the setbacks that he's had and, and his players have had, it's not a surprise that they're not as motivated. Klopp's not as motivated. Obviously, it's not a it's not a, a negative on Jurgen Klopp. I think any manager of any team would be, you know, acting the way he's acting. If even half the stuff that's happened to him in the past few months had happened to anyone else, I think from one manager in Thomas Tuchel, I think we've got talked about another manager in Carlo Ancelotti and what he's doing with his Everton side. Yeah, they're getting better, aren't they? Certainly getting better. Everton, they had two games this week. They won both of them 1-0 against Southampton and West Brom. Charleston got both the goals. I think and Everton, they're one of those teams that are also in the race for the top four. I've watched a lot of their games this year and I think, again, again like Tuchel, they've just become defensively solid. You know, and then they've got the Charleston, Dominic Cavett, they're in to get the goals. Panos Rodriguez to pull the strings. And I think they're just building a really good Everton team. When you bring in a man like Carlo Ancelotti, it's it's only a matter of time before that kind of winning mentality gets entered into the team. And that's ultimately why the Everton team, again, we talk about the names of football players. They've got 
arguably one big name in there in James Rodriguez. But other than that, it's just a load of players who are willing to work hard. Uh, we say every week, working hard is the most important thing in football now. And I think it's just they've got that work right now and then the experience that Carlo Ancelotti can bring in. But ultimately, I just think he is an incredible manager. And I just think with what he's done at Chelsea, it's not really a surprise. I just think with it being Everton, how how far are they realistically going to go with Ancelotti? Because I don't think they're ever going to win a league. I think it's just, I think, you know, you look at their squad, they obviously are lacking the squad depth that other teams have. I wonder if, like, if they can keep Ancelotti for a couple of years, you know, every sort of transfer window they bring in one or two really good players that improve their squad and you wonder whether they can just slowly over time build a really good Everton team that can you know get in the top four consistently and then just keep building on and eventually going to the top but obviously that could you know take a long while you know you look at all the other teams around and they've got really good squads as well I think that's the problem with Everton sort of when they were under David Moyes as well they they never really took that next step I think they just ended up being comfortable being a you know sort of a top eight team or whatever they are. I think as well, one one thing that's been very big is the turnaround of what that team was compared to what it is now. Because ultimately, Everton were looking like a bottom half of the table side for quite a while under the one before Ancelotti. Everton were looking poor; they were looking awful actually. And then I think you you bring in someone like Ancelotti, and he just kind of calms the whole thing down. Ultimately, you have to know as a manager that. You're not going to win a league with a team that are in 18th or 16th or whatever it was. You're not going to just win the league like that in the next season or two. So I think he's just kind of calmed this, everyone down. He's he's brought in these players who are able to to win games. But also he's brought in young players. You look at Ben Godfrey. He's you know he's brought in younger players that have the opportunity to improve around the more experienced players. And I think ultimately that's what he's building for. They might not be. You know, one of the best teams ever to be in the Premier League. But I think for Everton, just being able to kind of get out of Liverpool's shadow that little bit year by year, I think that will be enough. And then eventually, you know, in, in a in a manager or two's time even, they might then be able to go and challenge for a league. But I think just for now, just getting them to be a steady top eight team is probably about right for them. Obviously they beat they beat Southampton and then they beat West Brom. They're probably games that you I just expect think, them to win. Exactly, and I think that's the difference, is when you're going into games and you are getting the victories that you need against the teams you should be beating, it takes a lot of pressure off the bigger games. And ultimately, yeah, I think it's going to be a real positive for Everton going forward. I could see Ancelotti being there for a couple more years before he retires. And yeah, I mean, it can only be seen as a positive, really. Yeah, they obviously beat Liverpool in the the game before as well, so there's you know sort of three wins on the trot. But I think looking at the two recent ones against Southampton and West Brom, I think we just sort of have to look at Southampton are really struggling at the moment, aren't they? Southampton, I don't really know what's happening because at the start of the season they were tweeting about stop the count and all this kind of stuff. I think obviously that nine nil defeat this season again has probably affected them. The problem is, I think, for a long amount of time in most seasons, they've been overperforming with the players they've got. I don't think they're bad players, but they're not players that should be anywhere near that kind of top six, top eight kind of realm. They are a team that should really be sitting, not quite where they're sitting, but you know, maybe in 10th or something. I think it's, it's a shame because we always talk about you know the effort and stuff, and I think Southampton players work unbelievably hard every single game because they know they're not these like absolute ballers with the exceptions of like Danny Ings and James Ward-Prowse and Minamino most of them haven't quite got the talent of those upper echelons of players and they do have to have to work a lot harder I suppose the one question you, that we do need to ask is what can they actually do between now and the end of the season to kind of rectify the situation Get some wins, stop score, uh, conceding. Like if you look at their previous games, they've conceded three against Leeds, you know, three against Newcastle, two against Wolves. You look at them and they're, they're games that Southampton should be arguably, you know, sort of drawing or winning. And obviously, Danny Ings has been injured quite a lot this season, so he's obviously not fired them to the higher position. They're obviously they're only sort of seven points above Fulham in the relegation zone. So if I was Southampton fans, I'd be worried. I'm not sure. I don't think they're going to get pulled into a relegation battle, but at the same time, it wouldn't 
it ultimately wouldn't surprise me if they did, but I, you know, I don't re- realistically think they will. No. One thing with with Southampton, as well as a lot of teams, so one thing definitely with Southampton is how important this summer is going to be in terms of they have to bring in technically gifted players or they have to bring in young players and kind of because I heard Chris Wilder in an interview this week being open and honest and just say we're thinking about transfers for next year we want to develop the best championship players we can get so ultimately we are going to go down but we're going to bounce right back up obviously Southampton if they're remaining in the league don't want to have that attitude but ultimately if that's the way they did want to go they are a team where if they did get relegated it would be a case of down and back up again straight away but then if they didn't go down they'd have these young players who would would then be experienced in the Premier League and you know it ultimately be a positive for them going forward I think because I don't think they're going to keep hold of Minamino for example I think he there's no way Liverpool will let that go to a transfer absolutely no way and if they do it's a massive mistake is there any players that you could see that would suit that kind of Southampton style of play in any way? Well, I think they do play quite good attacking football. I think you look at sort of a lot of championship players, they could easily get into that sort of Southampton team. You look at Ismail Assar that plays for Watford, he could easily fit in their team. He's They were even looking at him for Liverpool. Oh, he's, yeah, he's a he's a Premier League player through and through. He's incredible. Yeah, I think that's all. They they seem to play quite direct attacking football. I just think you know you look at their uh, their team. You know, got Danny Ings, one of the a very proven Premier League goal scorers, just not quite worked out for him this season. You know, you look at Redmond, Minamino, James Ward Prowse, a very good midfielder, Romeo. It's just they've got a very good squad in comparison to the teams around them. It's just not worked for them this year. You could say it's probably, you know, another 9-0 loss for them. Just really brought their confidence down. But obviously, I think Ralph, being the manager he is, I'm sure he'll keep them safe and be able to get them back onto winning games. Do you think maybe a new manager's the answer at all? I don't know. I think I really like what he's done there. I think he's done a good job. He's, I think he's improved the players there. I think... As a manager now, you've got to really be able to kind of almost change your style in terms of when the team finds out the best way to beat you, it's then how can you adapt? And I think he just hasn't, ultimately hasn't adapted that well. You look at, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily downplay someone for the formation they play, but ultimately he does play kind of 4-4-2. So he's kind of not really got that kind of, that quarterback role that most teams do have, or he's not got that attacking player. You look at James Ward-Prowse and that Romeo who play in the middle. Ultimately, they're not. They're literally just doing the backwards and forwards role. So they're kind of one of them will go to the edge of the area, the one on the halfway line with the defence. As they're coming back, they're both back. I just think to kind of help them get ultimately get through and cut cut the lines a bit more. They do need kind of. Potentially that kind of four-three-three, four-one-two-one-two situation where they've got someone whose job it is just to sit back, and then they've got two players who can't go and attack and do that backwards and forwards stuff as much as they want, really, because they know they've got whilst they're attacking, they know they've got three men who can be sat back ready to kind of stop the counters. You know that kind of Fernandinho role that Man City have. Yeah. But at the end of the day, four-four-two. It has worked. It does work. It's obviously a very proven formation, so I'm not necessarily gonna gonna discredit him for that. But it's kind of these ideas where I think Ralph, as a manager, has got to maybe start to think, kind of like what we've talked about with Jose Mourinho. He's got to kind of think, how can I adapt the the way I play to fit the standards that have been set by the Premier League, which are ultimately so high. They play Sheffield United this coming weekend, so. That's obviously a good chance to put their form behind them and get a win, and hopefully it's also it's also a big banana skin match for them potentially as well. Well, I mean, you look at Sheffield United; they beat they somehow managed to scrape a win against Aston Villa one nil, and they went down to I think ten men for the last half an hour of the game. Mm. I think Aston Villa struggled to create anything. Obviously, they're missing Jack Grealish and Matty Cash, I believe. 
And obviously, a different team with Jack Grealish. I think any any football team without Jack Grealish will be will struggle to win games. I think he's that good of a player. I think Aston Villa has sort of on a bit of run a run of bad form. I think just how important is Jack Grealish to their team? Well, I mean, Jack Grealish is incredibly important to the Premier League. Obviously, you saw Chris Wilder. He did an interview. He said he's he thinks Jack Grealish is the best player in England. I, there's no argument from me for that. I think he is. I think the job he does at Aston Villa, the job he will do at England, there's his ceiling is ridiculously high, and I think ultimately his ideal situation would be to stay at Aston Villa forever and maybe maybe win Aston Villa or a Premier League or an FA Cup or something. Do you think he's um, too good for Aston Villa though? Oh yeah, of course he is. Do you not think that him staying at Aston Villa for let's say the next five years, do you not think that will sort of hold him back? So this is the thing, it's 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 what we were talking about with Harry, um, with Harry Kane. With Harry Kane. Some players value their team more than they value the money, the fame, the riches. And ultimately if Jack Grealish goes to Man United, Man City, Liverpool, he could play for Barcelona, he could easily get into Real Madrid's team. He could get into Juventus. he could get anywhere pretty much. I think any team in in world football takes Jack Grealish for hundred million quid. But I ultimately think he is a lifelong Aston Villa fan. I remember watching Villa versus Birmingham. You know the game where he got punched yeah. when he was in the Championship? I remember watching that game. and Obviously, he got punched. He, he you know, acts like the, the proper gentleman that he is. He's not... As much as he's made mistakes in his past, he is a, he's, he's obviously a good lad. He loves the club. And you can see every time he scores, and especially against Blues, who are the main rival, you can see in his face he just absolutely loves it. He loves the Villa fans. He just loves everything about it. And ultimately, I just think he, as much as he'll be a wasted talent, it'll be one of them where I understand. It's like Liverpool with Steven Gerrard. A lot of people would probably argue that Steven Gerrard leaves Liverpool, he goes and wins the Premier League at Man United, Manchester City, whoever. I think it was Chelsea. I think Mourinho won Or Chelsea, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? He, he could go anywhere and he'd be the best player, one of the best players in that team and win a league. Ultimately, allow people to talk about Steven Gerrard as one of the best Premier League players ever, and he didn't even win anything. I think we'll be talking about Jack Grealish in that same way, and I think ultimately people will praise him for his dedication to to the team and kind of how much he's done for the, you know, the kind of Aston Villa fans. Really, um, I think there's also going to potentially be a lot this summer with the Euros on the rise with what Jack Grealish can bring to this England team and you know his status could go so high if he you know gets in, takes England to the US final or even win it you know he's got he has the talent to be able to just drag England through any game that we play you know he can win fouls even he, he can score he can create I think that's sort of what England have been lacking the last couple of years a player like Jack Grealish that will he'll run his socks off the whole game he'll, he'll, he'll drag the ball up the pitch he'll win fouls We've been lacking that midfielder. I think we've had, you know, talent all over the pitch. It's just that player, you know, you sort of like like Gascoigne, like you know, just to drag England through the mud. So I mean, I can definitely. I think again, it's that kind of. If you stick at your club and you're not bothered about winning things, then playing for England is just another honour. You know what I mean? It's not like with these players who play for Man City's and New Liverpool's. I think with Jack Grealish, what you're going to get is a very honest player who gives everything for the shirt. He understands what it means to play at, you know, at the lowest level. He played for Notts County. You've got to remember, like he was that kind of player. He's, he's come from the bottom right the way to the top. It must have been the most frustrating journey being you know, at your boyhood club, not getting the games, and then obviously all of a sudden you know, he, he becomes this Villa player. And ultimately the Villa captain. In fact, I think it was two years ago, a couple of days ago, since he became Aston Villa's captain. The first game he did it was against Derby County. He scored a, a wonder volley. You've probably seen it on yeah, seen social that. media or something. I think ultimately the fact that he's this is you know that kind of day is happening for him must be an incredibly proud moment. I ultimately think he bleeds, you know, claret and blue, and I think he'll you know he'll he'll bleed three lions for England if that's even the right way of saying it. You know, I mean, I think he will, he will be that player like your Mason Mounts that we've talked about before, who will just give everything. He'd bust a gut to play for England, and I, th- I think that's going to be one of the really valuable things in the uh, Euros coming up. Yeah, I think we've spoken about it before. Just the depth of the England squad at the moment. 
I just think we have an un unbelievable amount of talent right now. You look at, you know, Phil Foden, Mount, Grealish, Madison, the list, the list goes on. It's obviously England have a really good chance this summer. I think we're all going to be wanting it to come home. Yeah, I think ultimately, though, the manager's just not good enough. Yeah. I think Gareth Southgate, yeah, I'm sure he's a lovely bloke. You know, again, I think we said about the PE teacher vibes that you get from him. Ultimately, I think we need someone who's actually going to, you know, win his games. and play. He's going to have to build a team around someone other than Harry Kane. Because if we keep building teams around Harry Kane, then it'll be the same thing of lumping balls into the box. And it hasn't worked for the last however many years. So why would it start working now? I think he's got a there's got to kind of be a main a main three or four players where he's they're always in the team. And to be honest, he's got an absolute headache because he's got Foden, Grealish, Mount, Madison, Harvey Barnes, you could argue, Sancho, Rashford, Greenwood, Deli Alley coming back. Obviously Harry Kane, Raheem Sterling. There's so many. Is that young lad who's played for Bayern recently? Yeah, Did you see that? No, apparently he's opted to play for Germany. Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I mean, it, I think we've got a good chance in terms of the squad. It's just making sure Gareth Southgate makes the right decisions and doesn't take players he doesn't need. I'm thinking a bit of like Kieran Trippiers and stuff like that that just don't need to be there, I think, to be honest. I think he needs to look at the mistakes that the other managers made with the previous sort of golden generation we had. I still think it's a shambles that we didn't win anything with the players we had, you know, the Rooney's, Owen, Scholes, Beckham, Gerard, Lampard. I think we're sort of coming through, hopefully, another golden generation now, and I think he just needs to take players that he needs, put play players in the right position, have a formation that works for the whole team. And I think if he does all that, there's a good chance that England wins something. Even if he doesn't take, let's say, for all arguments, let's say that four players he takes, like Grealish, Mount, Madison, Foden. Even if he doesn't play Madison and Mount and just sticks with Grealish and Foden, that's got to be a decision he makes. And ultimately, if you take in those four, you leave Raheem Sterling at home and you could argue you maybe leave Mason Greenwood at home as well. You could even make an argument for leaving Marcus Rashford at home. I think he's got to make those really difficult decisions. I just don't think he's got it in him to be a horrible person, which isn't a, you know, it's not a dig at him. But I just think he's far too nice to make those horrible decisions. And ultimately, it won't be England's attack that's the problem. It'll be the defence, I think. For example, I think if you had Jose Mourinho in charge of England, he doesn't care about hurting anyone's feelings. He'll take the players that he wants. He We'd needs. win everything. You know, if you, if you get upset about it, boo-hoo, go cry about it somewhere. He won't care. And I think that to be a good international manager, I think you've got to be like that. You've got to be ruthless. And at the end of the day, what's the squad size you can you can take? I want to say it's 24. 24. So think about it, you've got to take three goalkeepers probably. And you have, to be safe. I think you sort of have about six, seven defenders and then sort of the same for midfielders and then like sort of four or five yeah. attackers. And this is his problem again. He's, he's got, I think, four. So you're probably going to do two of each fullback, maybe? Yeah. And then maybe three centre backs or something to be safe. Yeah. So he'd probably, he's probably going to take Trent and. Or would you even take Trent? He has been awful this season, to be honest. I don't, I don't think he, he deserves the call up on ability alone. Obviously, he can't take Gomez. In terms, sorry, in terms of fullbacks, you'd probably take at the minute you'd take Reese James and Aaron Wan-Bissaka, really. Yeah, I think on the left side you'd probably have to look at Luke Shaw and then either maybe Luke, Cresswell or Chilwell. I think Luke Shaw starts, and I'd probably say Chilwell as well. Yeah, and then obviously you've got the set. The centre backs are going to be John Stones and one other, aren't they? Really? Yeah, you look at probably It'll be John Stones and whoever best complements him, and it probably will be Harry Maguire. I think, for that kind of Ferdinand yeah, Fidic type thing. Yeah, I think you look about. at the John Stone's got the pace to be able to cover him, and Maguire's obviously strong in the air. He won't get bullied by anyone. Maybe that's what we do. We'll do the podcast next week, and we will just do. We'll, we'll have a break from the Premier League, and we'll just talk England for a bit. I, I think that'd be uh, something happens. good to do. 
Yeah. Well, uh, actually, I think there's an international break coming up soon. Oh, that'll be good. That'll be good. We'll get to see his... Tell what we'll do in that case is over the next few weeks, we will pick our international teams. We'll post them on our Instagrams, keep an eye out. And we'll let whoever they want to, anyone who's obviously on our Instagram can make a comment on them. And we'll see whose team ultimately is the best and we'll debate it on here. Every man. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> when you've got Matty Cash playing at right back, <laughs> Joe Warren at centre back, James Gardner in the middle, or Gardner, sorry, in the middle. It's incredible. But yeah, um, what we got coming up over the next week at BBK? Um, we've got some, you know, there's a bit of a different range of games. There's, uh, there's the Manchester Derby on Sunday. It's just a matter. There's a matter of some big games at the bottom of the tables. You look at Sheffield United, Southampton, uh, West Brom, Newcastle. Very big game for them. And there's a sort mm-hmm. of a big game in the battle for the top four with Chelsea and Everton. And then there's just a few of the West Ham Leeds will be a very good game to attacking teams. I think Aston Villa against Wolves is obviously it's kind of a, a Midlands derby. I know I've got I've got a few friends who who maybe wouldn't agree. But it's, you could argue it's a little bit of a derby. Yeah, that might be interesting to watch, especially with the form of the two teams basically being the exact opposite. Wolves playing pretty poorly. Um, but what what I'll, what I suggest we do is maybe I'll kind of one of us can go just kind of read down the games and then we'll make predictions and and see how close we get. Yeah, this will probably be another TikTok thing where we get them completely all wrong. <laughs> So, uh, the first one I've got here is Burnley and Arsenal. What are you saying, Ben? I can't see anything other than an Arsenal win. What, you, what score do you reckon? Um, I think Burnley can normally nick a goal, can't they? Uh, I want to go 2-1 mm-hmm. uh, Arsenal. I think we might get a one-all draw, you know, with Burnley. I just think the one type of team Arsenal don't want to face are a team that play the long balls because they're not quite physical enough. And yeah, I, th- I think that could be potentially a bit of a, a boring draw, or it could easily be, like you say, Aubameyang scores nine, and <laughs> I eat my words, but my game I'm going to go with a draw, a one-all draw. All right, then we've got the uh, Sheffield-Southampton. I'm going to go for the shock of the weekend. I'm going to say that's going to be 1-0 to Sheffield United. Um, I'm going to go for a 2-0 Southampton. I think that'll be the game where they get their mojo back with just Sheffield United being so poor, basically down already. It'll be a big game in terms of mo- momentum for, for both teams. Yeah, I think you know if Southampton lose that, that potentially that's, that's danger for them. And whilst I think the only thing that Southampton can kind of look at and be grateful is the fact that ultimately Sheffield United haven't got anything to play for anymore, so... They might just, for want of a better word, they might just not be asked. Next one is Villa versus Wolves. That's a, a bit of a black country derby. That's a bit of a tricky game. I think Aston Villa, without Grealish, they're just a completely different team, and Wolves aren't being the Wolves have just not been their usual selves this year. I, I'd, I'd say a one-all draw. I'm going nil-nil. I don't think it's going to be. I think it'll get hyped up, and I think it'll be a rubbish game. Yeah, it might just be a cagey doggy <laughs> fight between them. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, neither of them particularly look like scoring. I could see maybe Ollie Watkins having a few chances, but not really much more than that. No, then we've got Brighton Leicester. It should be a Leicester win, but I'm going to go for a 1 0. I'm going to 2 1 Brighton. I think I might join you with that. I do like how Brighton play under Graham Potter. I think they've been unlucky lately, especially with the West Brom result, VAR. And I think Leicester, they've had a lot of injuries. I think Harvey Barnes is out, Madison's. Sort of been injured there. Vardy's not been doing well this season. Yeah, I think that their injuries will play a massive part. But yeah, it's, it's like with all these games, as much as with the Premier League this season, I'm saying that one team will definitely win and one team will definitely lose. Most games could go either way. Yeah. I mean, like the the I'd, I'd say the biggest game of the week in terms of apart from obviously the, the Manchester derby, in terms of how big it actually is, the biggest game in terms of the effect on the league will be. West Brom against Newcastle, absolutely huge, and it's imperative that, a massive game that the Steve the Bruce gets his team up for that. But obviously, with the recent news articles about a bust-up in training, I could see maybe a Sam Allardyce masterclass and like a two-nil win for West Brom. Um, I, I will back you with a West Brom win as well. I've watched a few of the West Brom games. I think they've just, you know, they've got a midfield. They've got Gallagher, 
they, that new signing that they had. You've got a bit of a complicated name and mate the Niles. I think they've just got a really good midfield, a good defence. And I, I, I think I, I've always said that I could see them staying up. What, West Brom? Yeah. Are you joking? No, there's, there's a lot of games to play. Hey, when we when it comes to Mar- sorry, when it comes the, to May sorry, the seventeenth, was... and my safe, come back to me, yeah. Okay, that is the end of the both podcast because we ultimately don't know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> so moving on, I would say it's the easiest game to predict, but it's probably not Liverpool versus Fulham. What are you saying? Man? I don't know. It's at Anfield as well. I think you go on, if you go on form, it should be a Liverpool loss. It should actually, realistically, it should be Liverpool losing four 0 But I think you just Liverpool. It'll probably be a game where they decide to turn up. They'll be like, you know what, let's turn up today. Why not? I don't know because Scott Parker did get a draw against Liverpool at Craven Cottage with Liverpool being a considerably stronger and more informed side. I'm you know, I'm gonna stick my neck out. It's gonna be two nil to Fulham. Oh be oh do you think oh do you Six think Fulham in a row are stay at Anfield. Up? Fulham of course Fulham are gonna stay up. What are you on about? Who's getting relegated then? Newcastle, West Brom, Sheffield United. West Brom are on seventeen points. Yeah it's only six behind uh Fimijigi. They beat Newcastle well, New- they've got three back. If Fulham win, Fulham are out of the relegation. Yeah, though. and you see you later Newcastle, Southampton, or Brighton. No, it's going to be West Brom. <laughs> I'm actually tempted to put a bet on West Brom staying up now because I just, I might just put all my. We life, can, we can might, make a bet right here. I might just put all want. my life savings on it. Sam Allardyce, if you hear this, <laughs> get them going. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to go two 0 Fulham. What did you say? Yeah. Could go either way. I might, I might join you if Fulham win. Why not? One 0 mm. Okay, the Manchester derby, the most hyped game of the week. It's going to be incredible. There's going to be fireworks. It's going to be One. a nil-nil draw. <laughs> I think you have to look at how Man United line up in the big games. Ole will go to be tough to beat. He'll try and hit him on the counter. Man City will have basically like 100% possession of the ball. I might join you in a nil-nil, nil-nil. or maybe a one-nil <laughs> for United. It's gonna be so boring. <laughs> it's actually gonna be horrendous. They're gonna they're gonna generally big it up for the whole weekend, Ooh. and then it's gonna be a nil nil. Like, yeah, when they have all the games on Saturday. Oh, join us tomorrow for the Manchester derby. Join us tomorrow for the greatest game this game has ever seen. Join us to watch Kevin De Bruyne put one cross in in ninety minutes. So yeah, I think I'll go one nil United <laughs> or a nil nil draw. I never thought that on a podcast I'd be taking the mick out of Sky, but there you go. Tottenham Crystal Palace, I think I would say this is actually the easiest game to predict of the weekend. It is. Because Crystal Palace's form has been dreadful, Tottenham's form has been good, you add those together, and Crystal Palace win, no. And I think I could 4-0 Spurs quite easily. I think Crystal Palace are really... Well, I mean, I say that they did just—they did manage to get a goalless draw against United uh, midweek as well. So I think I'll yeah, go. Yeah, that's not that difficult, is it? No, I'll go. I'll go three 0 I think ultimately that front three are just going to absolutely ruin their back line because yeah. you know their back line is Gary Cahill. That's <laughs> it. I couldn't even name the rest of the back line. Um, no, I'll go three 0 Spurs. Okay, Chelsea Everton. I think I just I think I can't see Chelsea conceding or even getting beaten. Uh, beaten. But then Everton have been on decent form themselves. I think that'd be a good game to watch. Actually, I think I'll go two nil, two one. Actually, two one Everton. Uh, Chelsea. Um, see, I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to say two one Everton. Oh. I can see because I don't think ultimately I don't think that's a, a bad result if Chelsea lose that game. Because ultimately Everton are a very informed side. They're a very good side. But then that, that depth that they've got on obviously Mason. Now I'm going to stick 2-1 Everton. 2-1 Everton. You sure? Yep, definitely. Last game of the week. The mo- the two most talked about teams on the both podcast are playing. It's going to be West Ham versus Leeds United. It's going, the... going to be a really good game to watch that. This the both podcast derby. <laughs> uh, the two teams that we love the most. I believe it'll be a West Ham win. Oh, I, yeah, think I think there'll be, be, a, I think there'll be a lot of goals. 6 3. Or something like that. <laughs> Jesse Lingard, Patrick, maybe? No, Jesse Lingard will get five. <laughs> Patrick Bamford gets four. Yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise. Actually, no, I'm going to go. I, might, I think I might go for a four all draw, you know. I think it could. Something like that. It could be a, a crack of a game. I'm going to go 4 3, the uh, West Ham. 
I'd say that's sens- I'd say that's sensible. I'd say that's sensible. Um, and I think on that note, we have been the bold podcast. We have indeed. This has been uh, another good episode. Actually, we've we've kind of we see we feel like we're getting better and better each week. Um, I listened to our podcast on a run uh, last week. It was quite enjoyable. I listened, uh, I listened so, to mine sitting down in my room. Oh, uh, good. So at least you know one of us is being active. The other one's on a run. <laughs> um, but no. Uh, so we would like to thank you for listening. As always, please go over to our Instagrams, go over to our TikToks, uh, stuff like that. Are we going to agree that we're going to get someone on next week, Ben? Uh, I uh, I don't uh, I don't know. That seems a bit pressure. We're making an agreement now. I think we've got to commit to the fans. Commit to the fans. Uh, All eight of them. <laughs> and three of, four of them are my own family. Yeah, and the other four are my family. <laughs> and one of them's me. Um, uh, I think we could. I don't want to. I don't like, you know, putting anything set in stone. You know me. Well, I think if people would like to, to see people on the podcast, as we always say, if you want to be on the podcast or you want to see someone on the podcast, Send us a message. You know, we might do, we we'll, could do something on Instagram. You know, uh, put out who wants to be on there. We'll see if uh, people want to come on. Yeah, we forgot about the questions again that we said we we're going to do this week. <laughs> so I think those questions will never get answered. <laughs> and on that note, I've been Ben, and I've been Ben. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you again next week. Bye bye. Cheers. <laughs>